Hello Digital Health Unplugged listeners, it's Andrea here. We just wanted to drop you a quick note to say that while coronavirus continues and we are all now working from home, we have begun recording the podcast remotely as we didn't want you to miss out. So please bear with us while we work out some teasing issues, particularly with audio, as sometimes our Wi-Fi just didn't want to play ball. Now, on with the podcast. Welcome to Digital Health Unplugged. You're listening to our March news team debrief, and we will be discussing the biggest news stories of the month and the impact they're likely to have within the NHS. I'm Andrea Downey, Senior Reporter for Digital Health, and joining me today are Hannah Crouch, Digital Health's Editor. Hello. Owen Hughes, Senior Reporter for Digital Health. Hello. And John Hoeksma, Digital Health's Editor-in-Chief. Hi there. Been a busy month for us at Digital Health. We were really lucky and we missed the coronavirus panic and lockdowns for our Rewired Leadership Summit and the Expo, which still went ahead on the 3rd and 4th of March. Uh, John, do you want to tell us a little bit more about how it all went and how many people came in? Yeah, I think, first of all, we got really lucky. I mean, coronavirus was clearly in the news, but two weeks, um, things have moved a huge amount. I think if we'd been a week later with the show, we'd probably be looking at postponement or cancellation, as so many shows are having to. Um, but um, we got fortunate um, and we had a great program, very well attended, um, huge variety of speakers, big focus on um, diversity, inclusion um, and leadership. Um, we had about 1800 people on um, day two, the big conference and exhibition and 300 um, for the leadership summit on day one. Um, some fascinating kind of um, sessions. Um, I think some of the highlights I'll just pull out um, was Jacqueline de Roja um, was our opening keynote at the Leadership Summit, speaking about the vital importance of diversity um, in um, the workforce. Um, Sarah Wilkinson did a really good um, session on how NHSD um, is um, shifting a huge amount of effort into digital responses to the coronavirus. Um, and from um, Matthew Gould, um, we learned um, that the Aspirin program um, was just on the verge of being announced, didn't quite get announced that um, at Rewired. Well, it did, but unofficially so. Um, and we'll be talking about that a bit later on. But for me, the real highlight of Rewired is just the sheer breadth of um, speakers. We had over 150 speakers across seven um, different theatres, plus um, the Pitch Fest, which um, was um, an absolute kind of um, barnstormer this year. Um, plus the new data lab. And as if that wasn't enough, um, we also had the health dev conference as well. So thanks to everyone that um, helped make Rewired so memorable. Um, and, um, you know, it may be that's the last kind of um, big event um, that happened in the sector for a little while um, because our world has been turned upside down, continues to be turned upside down by um, coronavirus. Yeah, and I was going to say, speaking of, we've had loads of big news stories, uh, several that you've just mentioned, including the aspirants and also uh, Sonia Patel being announced as NHSX's new CIO. Um, She'll be taking up her role in the summer. But obviously, I don't think we can run a podcast at the moment without talking about coronavirus and, you know, the NHS's response to that. Uh, GPs have been urged to go digital to reduce face-to-face appointments in a bid to prevent the illness spreading. A special NHS 111 service to provide advice on the coronavirus had more than a million people access it in less than a week uh, since its launch. NHS England has revealed it's working with tech giants like Google and Twitter to combat the spread of fake news about the illness. And there's just so much more going on in the space. 
Uh, Digital Health News is also asking our readers whether or not coronavirus is going to force us to speed up the adoption of digital solutions across the NHS. Uh, Hannah, you've been monitoring this poll for us. How is that going so far? Um, yeah, so we've been running a poll. I think we started it last week. Um, obviously, it's been a topic which has been really interesting um, and very topical um, and a lot of interest in digital tools and how they can help um, with isolation and ensuring that people are kept well enough. Um, at the time of the recording, we've had more than 200 votes. Um, obviously, when this goes out, uh, it'll be closed. So everyone make sure you look out for the results. And on that note of spreading sort of or adopting technology quicker, I want to open that up to the whole team. Do you all think that this is going to force the NHS to be a little bit quicker at adopting technology? Um, well, I think it's nice that we've kind of seen the fact that coronavirus is a worldwide crisis and technology suppliers realise that they have a hugely important role to play in stopping it spreading further and, um, you know, making sure patients can still access the services that they need when they need them. So, yeah, from that, we've seen a lot of GP software providers and other digital health service providers running around this need to help the NHS cope with the extra demand from coronavirus. And I think in some ways it could be a boost to try and, you know, to get these um, digital apps and services into the hands of more GPs and patients. But maybe it's not maybe it's not the best thing to have happened. But um, it's certainly I think it's certainly going to serve the uptake of digital health positively in some regard. Yeah, I think um, I think I couldn't agree more on that kind of. I mean, the old saying that kind of um, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, I think it's less invention here and more about adoption where we're seeing um, a lot of people kind of looking at how they can adopt a whole range of tools ranging from productivity, remote working to patient access um, at scale quickly. I think with coronavirus, all of that kind of um, is now just being turbocharged um, and we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of kind of um, movement, both from um, the NHS, but also from suppliers who um, are offering, um, you know, free licensing um, for the duration of the crisis. Um, there's been quite a number. I think uh, Microsoft is one of them, um, you know, with its Teams products, that's only getting a lot of interest. Um, but most of the kind of big collab and, and video conferencing kind of um, players are all offering um, products free um, during the course of this crisis. So I suspect that um, an unintended side effect of, of this um, public health crisis is we're going to see certain areas very, very kind of um, rapidly adopt digital um, in a way that we, we were only seeing very kind of um, gradually previously. Uh, I think for me, uh, instead of kind of using the word accelerant, I think it's been a bit of a wake up call for the public um, as to how vital these digital tools can be. And I think people are starting to realise now, um, you know, how much these tools are needed. And But then I also think on the other side, there's got to be this kind of um, assurance that these things aren't being rushed out too quickly. I know mm-hmm. that sometimes adoption can be slow, but we have to make sure that the right tools are getting out there to the right people and that they're not being rushed out. I think the the fact that these tools have been around for quite some time, but we haven't necessarily use them quickly enough is Mm. quite interesting um it's not like you know video consultations and telephone consultations are hardly new um but all of a sudden now this has forced us to realize that we probably need to be moving towards that a lot quicker um i spoke to one of our columnists neil paul um who's a gp a couple of weeks ago and sort of he said that this has kicked the nhs forward in forcing them to adopt technology Um, because he said that a lot of practices um, are still in the stone ages and haven't quite moved along with digital transformation in the way that others have. Um, But what 
I found really interesting talking to him is the fact that a lot of staff aren't prepared for this sort of digital change as well, which is something that came up in the top of review last year is that we need to be preparing staff to use these solutions. And he said that it will, it will highlight it even further that we've got these solutions ready to go, but a lot of staff just aren't quite capable of using them yet. So hopefully this will force the NHS to focus a little bit more on upskilling the workforce as well. But I think if you step back from kind of, um, you know, the, the kind of more health professional side of things and just us as individuals, as citizens within a society that's being turned upside down, all of us are kind of um, having to kind of um, work out, well, how are we going to cope with, um, with kind of um, isolation, with social distancing? How are we going to kind of care for um, um, loved ones, um, particularly kind of, um, you know, um, older kind of um, relatives? Um, and the, the whole panoply of kind of digital tools um, is key to that. So, you know, um, how do you access kind of GP services when you can't physically go to the, um, to the practice, um, you know, is as the norm rather than the exception. So, you know, all kinds of, um, of creative kind of workarounds um, and, and changes in behavior are all being turbocharged done by this. And, um, you know, I, th I think it's really, really interesting if you, if you kind of fast forward to what life is gonna look like um, when we come out of this um, crisis, as I'm, I'm sure we will learn, and I think lots of assumptions would have changed. Um, you know, just to take digital health as an example, um, only about half the office had any experience of kind of um, working from home. We've basically closed the office, sent everyone um, um, home to work from home. Um, and, you know, what's the new normal going to look like um, after coronavirus? Because um, everyone's going to be used to working from home. They may not want to work in an office anymore. I think there's also this issue about NHS 111 online and obviously there was a surge of people um, mm. sort of accessing it, using it and, and using it as a tool. But I think there's been some sort of, uh, not complaints, but, uh, you know, comments that people can't get through to the right services. I guess this, this sometimes online is good, but sometimes it is better to kind of get that face-to-face -face, uh, interaction as well. But of course, with the things of coronavirus, that's just not possible. So maybe it also kind of open up the discussion as to whether these tools need to be enhanced and improved mm. um, accordingly as well. And, and we're seeing how, aren't we, um, you know, j just by accident, really, that, um, that some of those services are just overwhelmed by demand at the moment. So um, a thing that we've seen over the last couple of weeks is we've written a few stories about NHS 111 and coronavirus. And um, we have a kind of fairly straightforward reader comments function. And a lot of patients who are desperate to get through on the telephone advice service um, have posted um, against our new story, thinking that we are NHS 111, um, and some quite heart-rending kind of tales about um, people that have got serious medical conditions, have been trying for days in some cases to get through on the telephone um, service um, and can't. And, and we're directing all those people to either the online or, or, or kind of... Um, to um, other kind of health um, points of access in health services, but, but it's just a kind of indication that those services are under huge pressure and just how kind of frightening this is for a lot of patients um, who can't access those channels that exist because, because the kind of demand is, is so high and, and continuing to grow. I think that was when it was interesting during, you mentioned um, Sarah Wilkinson's talk at Rewired, when she was talking about how much work is going on behind the scenes to ensure that staff are 
and keeping up to date with all the latest developments because you know we're getting things through daily things are changing and and it makes you realize how hard these you know nhs staff members not just kind of those on the front line but those who are working on these digital tools as well so on the topic of our digital preparedness for you know an outbreak like coronavirus um the nhs has been setting themselves digital targets for quite some time uh, the long-term plan and the new gp contract last year had you know, a myriad of different targets that they were supposed to be meeting in terms of digital and technology solutions. Uh, Owen, you've recently been looking into these targets. Mm -hmm. uh, is NHS England monitoring their progress? And, you know, how are we going in achieving those targets? Well, it's really difficult to say because, um, as you said, we, we went to the NHS England um, to ask them about a number of the, the digital milestones for the long-term plan and the new GP contract. And it's probably safe to say we had pretty limited success um, so, for example, on the target of making 25% of GP appointments online uh, available to book online, sorry, by July last year, um, we essentially got an update of the work they've been doing to help GPs. So, you know, um, best practice guides and things like that. But what they didn't tell us is that kind of critical figure of whether that 25% uh, target had been met. Um, there were other instance, instances of this as well, so the major one being Acts to Facts. Um, so I think it was 2018 when Matt Hancock said that he banned uh, fax machines from the NHS and said they'd all be removed from the NHS by April 2020. So, you know, we're, what, two weeks away from that now? Um, and it looks like it's guaranteed to be missed. I mean, we know it's not going to, we know it's not going to happen. And it looks like that's down to a case of there's been no one central NHS body until very recently leading the programme. So. It just kind of shows that, you know, there are these very ambitious and don't get me wrong, difficult targets to achieve. But when it comes to actually tracking them, it just sort of question the accountability and whether the right processes are in place to keep things updated. So we know if these targets are being met. Yeah. And there is another really interesting one from the GP contract, uh, which said that uh, by April this year, um, GP practices need to make sure that they can offer online consultations. Um, this is one that I started chasing up a bit in December because I'd heard a few rumours that there was funding issues going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I couldn't get any information from NHSX, NHS England or the mm -hmm. BMA on this. And I just was yeah. chasing myself in circles for weeks trying to find out. Um, but from what I've sort of gleaned and from the new updates in the GP contract that were put through in February, it almost looks like that one's not going to be met either. Yeah. Um, but the fact that no one could tell me what was going on, I think, spoke volumes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's also seems to be a bit of a problem of kind of shifting goalposts. So I think we had a, a target in the original GP contract, which said that they would provide all patients with online access to their full record as a default. Um, and then that was updated in February, like you said, and which has basically been altered to say that patients can access prospective data. So up data up until that point and then they can have access to the full record if requested uh, unless exceptional circumstances apply so it's like you said these these targets are set they might get shifted it's just a little bit confusing yeah well to just offer a, just to offer a counter view on that that's obviously one of the things which um we're quite good at is tracking targets we we like targets to kind of follow up but you know the, i think the government and, and department of health absolutely shoots itself in the foot when it comes up with dumbass targets like um the ones for axe the facts or purge the pager i mean th these are ones dreamt up by a pr department rather than kind of any serious target um i think one that i'm, I'm interested in because it comes 
comes as the latest in a long line of targets, which are all essentially around the same thing, is um, the 2024 target, um, which is kind of linked to the Digital Aspirant Program um, for um, provider digitization. Now, I think that that's um, son of um, a, a kind of um, target that's, that's kind of um, you know been around for quite a long time, which is kind of um, taking the NHS paperless or paper light. And we must be coming up on the um, 10th anniversary of, of that target first, um, first being kind of, um, you know, um, suggested for the NHS. Um, so I think targets have an important role to play, but if you set a stupid target in the first place, then, um, you know, it's not necessarily a surprise when it, when it doesn't get achieved. Mm. I, th yeah. I, think what, I think what I'm interested to know is if there are processes in place to track them. I mean, do you think there'd be something you think there'd be like a spreadsheet sitting somewhere, um, you know, it's, it's just, it just, it slightly boggles the mind when you ask the NHS to provide a statistical update and they, they can't give it. Yeah, I think it does, it does seem a little bit silly that they're, you know, they're setting themselves these targets and then they're not, or they're seemingly not chasing them and making sure that they're actually hitting them. It, like, to me, I just think what's the point in setting a target if we're not gonna be working towards achieving it? So things are moving so quickly um, with coronavirus, um, and in particular, we're kind of um, awash with kind of news and updates um, from all kinds of suppliers and organizations and um, official bodies um, about websites um, and software and offers and webinars. So to try and help people kind of um, better kind of um, navigate that. Um, we um, have recently launched um, a live blog to follow um, digital responses to coronavirus. Um, Owen, you've led that for us. And do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, well, it's like you said, John, we've been kind of deluged with coronavirus updates for the last couple of weeks. And it's, it's quite hard to keep up with. Um, so we thought we would try something that worked for us very well at Rewired, which is to run a, a kind of a rolling blog, which will um, really just signpost readers to useful resources and articles around the web um, about coronavirus. Uh, including guidance from government and the NHS um, and really just the important stories that are affecting digital health at these, uh, at these uncertain times. And I believe we're also running a special webinar series, which, John, I'm sure you would like to discuss more. Um, yeah, thanks, Owen. Um, so we do lots of webinars. Um, again, um, it's to reflect how quickly kind of things are moving. Um, what we're going to try is um, a new format, which we introduced last um, week which is um, at least weekly, possibly more often um, than that, um, but beginning um, with each Friday, 12.30 through to two o'clock, um, we're gonna do a digital responses coronavirus um, webinar, um, three segments. So you don't have to join the whole thing, join the bit that you're interested in or stay for the whole thing. Each 30 minute segment um, is 50 minutes of um, presentation, um, by a um, part of the NHS or a team that's doing something um, particularly interesting um, to share with others or a supplier that's offering a um, service um, that can help people respond to coronavirus. So 15 minutes presentation and then 15 minutes of the usual kind of interactive Q&A that we do on webinars. Um, but usually on the webinars, we just um, focus on one um, particular thing. What we're trying to do with these is do more of an omnibus um, where it's three different kind of um, segments um and a huge amount of interest so far so do join us if you can um it's 12 30 to two o'clock um each friday lunchtime um 
always best to join live because um, that gives you the chance to kind of um, put your questions directly to the presenters. They are, however, um, also recorded um, and you can view them afterwards. So should we talk about some non-coronavirus news now? Yes, um, please. <laughs> NHSX has revealed the first wave of trusts in its new digital aspirant programme. Uh, 23 trusts have been chosen in the first wave and they will share £28 million between them to improve their digital offering. In total, uh, between three and six million pounds is going to be made available for them over the next few years, up until 2024. Uh, each trust had to match the funding from Central and will be expected to use the blueprints that have been produced by the Global Digital Exemplars. Um, they're also going to be required to produce their own blueprints at the end of this as part of the programme. So John, you've had a look through the list of trusts in the first wave. What are your thoughts on who was selected? Um, well, you know, they're an interesting kind of mix of kind of trust. These are um, trusts, which I think, you know, um, you probably kind of um, say they are, um, you know, mid-tier um, organizations. Um, there's a good range um, in there. Um, and certainly it's shifting the focus away from those kind of um, names who perhaps kind of are most often associated with, um, you know, digital kind of a maturity, which is the whole point of the aspirant program to get away from this um, elite kind of group. Um, but in terms of how they were selected and what the process was and what the criteria is, um, together with um, well, what it is they're actually meant to be doing, it's all been remarkably quiet. Um, the aspirant kind of um, program, there was a few rumblings about it, um, but um, you know, the actual kind of process of um, selection all seemed to happen at breakneck speed um, behind closed doors with um, very little transparency about it. And there might be some perfectly good reasons for that. Um, it might be kind of, you know, really simple. There was a bit of kind of money that was available and they had to get it over the line quickly. That sort of thing kind of happens um, quite a bit. Um, but I think where, where that becomes a problem is that unless you have some transparency around what organizations are doing, what they've been funded to do, what the kind of um, criteria are, um, and that doesn't have to kind of involve um, a really kind of heavy regulatory kind of burden on top of them. But unless there is transparency about what they're doing, how they've gone about it and what their outcomes are, then you have almost no chance of people actually learning from those that have gone before. And um, I think there was lots that was wrong with the GDE program, but it also had some kind of pretty good um, intentions when it came to um, sharing good practice, um, and um, and kind of enabling kind of experience from one organization to be shared with another. Now, still in early days, I think the blueprinting um, stuff is, is um, still fairly immature, and um, we had a good story on that recently. Um, but with the aspirants, um, they've come almost kind of fully formed um, out of the kind of, um, um, you know, um, left field, um, and we simply don't know much about them. Um, are there further waves of um, aspirants? It seems like there will be. How will those be chosen? So if you're a trust that hasn't yet been a GDE or a fast follower, you're not one of the aspirants, what's your route for getting into a kind of further wave? Um, you know, are you going to be left behind? Um, is there really going to be further waves? Because if those of you with kind of long memories remember, um, when GDEs were first um, created, there was going to be successive waves to follow, um, but they never materialized. So Lots of questions and congratulations to those aspirants that have um, got some money, but a bit more kind of um, transparency and explanation on how they were selected and what they're going to do would be very welcome. Yeah, um, it, it's funny that NHSX have announced them, but are also being really secretive around the selection criteria. And they made it very clear in the briefing that they gave to us that 
the selection criteria would be published, but they wouldn't tell us when, they just said in, in the coming months. So there's no deadline on that. So we don't actually know when they're going to tell us how they selected these trusts. Um, but I've spoken to a CIO at one of them about you know, the process they went through and what they had to do in order to get this money. And it looks like they've sort of, first of all, had to pull together a case study you know, sort of document to, to show how they would better improve patient experience and workforce using the money. Um, and also then describe how they would use digital solutions within that trust to do to do that and you know basically to show where the money is going. Um, they also have to show what they've already done in the trust in terms of delivering digital transformation projects. I guess that's to prove that they're capable of using this amount of money that's being given to them because um, it's, it's quite a chunk of money. Um, and I know that they're providing match funding that will be spent year on year. Um, but we have no idea whether their digital maturity assessments have come into it or not either. Because from what I understand, they're all at very different levels of digital maturity. So it's really interesting, um, the fact that they're all on this list, but we don't really know what, what it is that's made them like, you know, stand out compared to other trusts. Well, I think that gives us a challenge to kind of keep asking questions and, and try and kind of um, you know, dig a bit kind of more on that. Um, the aspirin program, you know, is meant to be much bigger in scale, we, we understand, and there's due to be kind of further waves. Um, you know, it's meant to deal with those 75% um, of NHS provider organizations that, that didn't kind of benefit from the um, GD or fast follower program. And, you know, a welcome start, but lo lots more, um, lots more kind of um, information needed. Um, I'm sure we're going to be writing tons about them um, over the months and years to come. What's perhaps surprising and um, maybe a little bit disappointing is that is that NHSX, which has started off, um, you know, with um, a lot of kind of um, you know goodwill and um, high hopes, um, one of the first significant things that it has done with the aspirin program um, has been done. Um, in in fairly secretive fashion with a lack of transparency and that seems much more continuity from what we had before it doesn't seem like a kind of clean um fresh approach um that we were all kind of um hoping for now it may simply be necessity due due to kind of timing and um other factors but um let's hope it's a one-off and and it's not an indication of this is going to be the standard familiar kind of um, modus operandi for NHSX as things progress because I think you know the the one of the keys to kind of um, success on, on digital and health um, is transparency openness and sharing and um, you know that has to start from the um, top of the shop it seems like it has been slow obviously um, it was announced in December we've only got the names through and there has been things like John said about um, coronavirus has slowed things down. But I also think you have to take into consideration we had things like Brexit um, and sort of uncertainty around that, which I think slowed down a lot of projects. And we also had a general election because I remember around the time sort of, sort of September, there were meant to be a few announcements being made, but they had to kind of put everything on hold um, for a lot of things. So I think that's kind of why it's maybe been a bit slow to start. But for me, I would like to see regular updates from them um, with with the aspirants as well and for their journeys to be documented um because mm. i think there's so much talk now when you talk to a lot of cios and ccios they like to learn from each other mm. and the good and the bad and you know we have our things like the networks which brings everyone together and for them to be able to share their journeys i think is really important so i think it is crucial that we do get these updates and we do get these updates on what these these kind of aspirants and the gdes are doing because sometimes it's just announced and then that's it and we don't hear from them again. So for me, I would like that kind of constant update. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, the point of learning from each other and talking to each other, that was also supposed to be the point of the blueprints. And, you know, we had the first wave announced um, and released last February. Um, And I've recently spoken to a few CCIOs and CIOs at trusts about whether or not they're using them. And it doesn't seem like many people are, you know, picking them up. Um, So it's really interesting that the aspirants are going to have to be following these blueprints um, in in order to, you know, they're going to have to be following the blueprints as part of the program and as part of their funding agreement. Um, It's going to be interesting to see how easy it is for them to follow those blueprints um, and if they're actually just a document that can be lifted and put in another trust. Because from who I've spoken to, it doesn't sound like it's as easy as just reading a document and being able to do it in the trust that you work in. I think that there's blueprints, um, you know, that they, they will need to evolve. I think, you know, get, sharing that sort of knowledge and experience and, and turning that into kind of um, knowledge artifacts that others can kind of, um, you know, um, ingest and actually make use of. I think that's hard. That That's fundamentally kind of quite difficult. And, um, you know, if, if the blueprinting program has kind of... Um, you know, not delivered everything that um, that everyone might hope straight away. I think, to be honest, that that's to be expected. So, I think as long as it continues to evolve, and it's not the only mechanism um, that's kind of um, been used. I think you know that that that's kind of for me very important. I mean, interestingly, in the US, when when they did the whole big push, the kind of digitization under kind of meaningful use, one of the kind of things which um, was a very important part of it was. Um, regional um, implementation centers. So that was um, a mechanism for investing a lot in building up knowledge and, and know-how of how you kind of um, digitize, how you kind of go through the kind of, um, um, you know, the organizational process changes needed. We've seen bits of this with things like um, the NHS um, Digital Academy. Um, but I think, you know, that was a beginning and you need a multi-layered kind of um, series of kind of supports um, to actually kind of um, achieve the kind of systemic change that we're still in the midst of. So blueprints, I think, you know, early days, potential, but by no means an answer um, just um, by themselves. So Hannah, John and Owen, thanks so much for taking part. And to everyone who's listening, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, you can catch Digital Health Unplugged every fortnight on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iTunes, as well as on our website. Catch you next time.